This morning we begin our study of Peter's second epistle. So I would encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. You can learn much about a man by listening to the passion of his heart just before he dies. As a pastor, I have had the experience of being around people and hearing their final words more times than I care to remember. Sometimes those final words are words of profound spiritual impact. And sometimes they are profoundly discouraging because of the lack thereof. But especially for the Christian, the finality of death causes men and women to dwell upon those things that are most important to them. The reality that life will soon be over somehow energizes a sense of divine urgency and a passion to focus exclusively on that which is vital, that which is important. And all of the fluff and frivolity of mundane matters, matters suddenly have no place in the setting sun of life. Plans for the day are replaced by preparations for the night. In the final days of life, all that is important to a man will typically be spoken. Certainly, wills will be put in order. They will be finalized. Goodbyes will be said and so on. But friends, for a, for a godly man or a godly woman, what will matter most in the life of a dying saint will be the spiritual condition of those they leave behind. Such was the case with Peter. Peter was about to be crucified. In fact, 2 Peter was written during the reign of the maniacal tyrant Nero in about 67 or 68 A.D., about three years after he wrote 1 Peter that we've just finished in our studies. Peter was probably in a Roman prison when he wrote this, and we estimate that he was martyred upon a cross within just a few months after completing this letter. You will recall that First Peter really emphasizes the triumphant hope for suffering saints as they faced mounting persecution. But now when we come to Second Peter, we see that his dying passion was to warn the church of something far more sinister, far more dangerous, far more deadly than external persecution. But rather now his focus, his parting words were on warning the church about false teachers, false doctrine, False teachers that would rise up from inside the very church and deceive the flock and devour them. Satanic emissaries teaching doctrines of demons so convincing, so appealing, yet so devastating. And as you read his letter, you can feel the sense of divine urgency in his inspired words. Like a man who uncovered a vast demonic conspiracy. He pins these words, cautioning the church about those who would prey upon the sheep, those who would lie and deceive and distort and counterfeit. As a sampling of this, he speaks of heretics who distort the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 2 and verse 1. He speaks of false prophets that will twist the scriptures to make them say what they want them to say rather than what they truly say. In chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, he warns of religious phonies that will follow and preach cleverly disguised tales, chapter 1, verse 16, as well as destructive heresies in chapter 2, verse 1. He warns of predators who will scoff at the second coming of Christ in chapter 3, verse 4, and laugh at the notion of impending judgment, chapter 3, verses 5 and 7. 
He will warn of religious charlatans that will secretly practice immorality. Chapter 2, verse 2, verses 13 and 14 and verse 19. And he will even warn of depraved religious entrepreneurs that despise authority. Chapter 2, verse 10. Those that are filled with arrogance and vanity. Chapter 2, verse 18. And those who are in it ultimately for the money. Chapter 2, verse 3 and verse 14. So here we read the passionate warnings of a shepherd whose love for his sheep energizes a desperate plea for caution as he boldly exposes the wolves that would devour them. And so in order to be able to spot a counterfeit teacher, in order to be able to really see the subtle deceptions that they will bring into the church, he once again begins his letter by giving us lessons in truth concerning the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It's for this reason that I've entitled my discourse this morning, The Essence of the Gospel. You see, the best way to spot a false teacher is to be so familiar with the truth of Bible doctrine that when you hear the slightest deviation from the truth, You know that something's wrong. So here in this first chapter, and we'll look at just the first four verses this morning, the Holy Spirit speaks through the beloved apostle and through the miracle of the inspiration of Scripture. He causes Peter to pen these words. Follow along as I read the first four verses that we will focus on this morning. Simon Peter a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellency. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now it's helpful for you to understand, before we look at these verses in detail, that chapter 1 is a reminder of the glorious essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will be a time of remembering the fundamental nature of our salvation. In fact, in verses 13 and 14, he says, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, in other words, as long as I'm still alive, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. So chapter 1 will provide a contrast for what he will say in the rest of the epistle. You see, friends, the blackness of night can only be appreciated when contrasted by the brightness of day. And in chapter one, Peter illumines our hearts and our minds with the dazzling brilliance of the gospel. And these glorious truths of transcendent beauty will stand in stark contrast to the character and the message of the heretics that will rise up from within the church, those charlatans that he will expose. So here he reminds us of the essence of the true gospel that exposes the essence of the counterfeit gospel taught by false teachers. And here, even in these first four four verses, in an economy of words, we have the essence of the gospel, all of which centers around the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have given you three categories this morning to help you understand these first four verses. We will see in Peter's reminder, number one, it is Christ's righteousness that saves us. Number two, it is his resources that empower us. And number three, his promises transform us. His righteousness saves us. His resources empower us and His promises transform us. 
Now, I might add that this is very different than a counterfeit gospel that will come in many different forms. They will ultimately say it is not his righteousness that saves us, but our own. It is not his resources that empower us, but our own. It is not his promises that transform us, but the wisdom of man. Each of these deceptions are found in varying ways in various false religious systems. Not just in the pagan religions, nor even in the cults, but my friends, they abound in apostate neo-evangelicalism. In fact, this is the rule today, not the exception that we see in many churches that would call themselves Christians. So first of all, we look at how Christ's righteousness saves us. It is not our own, but Christ. Notice verse 1. He begins by saying, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, even here, we see a sharp contrast to the false teachers who serve themselves. Peter calls himself a bondservant, which was a reference to a slave that was a willing slave, a willing slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, one marked by humility and love and submission and obedience. And also he is an apostle. In other words, he would be one who would have been chosen by God through no merit of his own, one who would have been empowered and commissioned by God himself, also one who had to have been an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. And here Peter expresses the sincere humility of his heart, as well as the, the marvelous privilege and the authority of his divine appointment. And with such credentials, his inspired words must be considered both authoritative as well as infallible. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once again, my friends, we see the centrality of Christ and his righteousness that saves us, not our own. Now, this presupposes our depravity. It presupposes that there is nothing inherent within us that is worthy of the holiness of God. It presupposes our inability to save ourselves. It presupposes our profound need for undeserved mercy and for the marvels of His grace. It also presupposes a heart of humility and a heart of contrition that would long for a righteousness that is not our own. And it would also presuppose a heart of thanksgiving, a heart of obedience, a heart of self-denial, a heart of service and worship. Now, all of these things are contrary to the essence of a counterfeit gospel that you will find in other religious systems. And certainly Peter was already seeing this rise up within the church. People that would say, we can achieve our own righteousness through good works. We can achieve our own righteousness through certain rituals, by performing certain ceremonies, by being affiliated with certain religious systems. We can do things that will obligate God to save us. Again, this is all contrary to the true gospel. And of course, one of the most devastating counterfeit gospels of our day is this gospel of prosperity, where somehow we are led to believe that God wants us to all be healthy and wealthy. And if you come to Jesus, he will satisfy all of your needs and make you rich. All you need to do is learn how to release the power of faith. Send me your seed faith. Plant your money and watch God bring in the harvest. And suckers by the millions fall for this deception. How tragic. A gospel not of self-denial, but a gospel of self-indulgence. A counterfeit gospel of self-fulfillment. Where we don't come to worship God, but we come to manipulate Him. What a blasphemy. And then... You can live any way you want. 
So he writes to those who have received, notice, received a faith of the same kind as ours. The same kind refers to one equal in value, something that is equal in rank. You see, there is no other faith, no other true faith that is saving. And he goes on to say, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, all believers, or I should say as believers, we all have been given the gift of faith. When by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit and His regenerating grace, He breathes life into the spiritually dead corpse of our depraved condition and causes us to suddenly see our sin and the Savior. And notice Peter says we have received a faith. Indeed, even our faith, my friends, is a gift from God. We, we cannot share in the glory of our salvation. It is all of grace from beginning to end. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And in our faith, we embrace the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. We understand that he died in our place. And while we may not fully understand all of the nuances of saving grace when we are first born again, as we grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Christ, we ultimately learn that indeed it was His righteousness that was imputed to our account that has saved us, that has reconciled us to a holy God. There was nothing righteous in ourselves. And in our justification, we are declared righteous. We're not made righteous, but we are declared righteous, righteous because of Christ. Paul speaks of this in Romans 4, verses 4 and 5. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but is what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned or literally credited as righteousness. That term reckoned, by the way, was a financial and legal term in the original language. And it has the idea of entering something into a book of account. And it was a term that described a one-sided transaction. And theologically, you must understand that when we believe, when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God takes His own righteousness and credits it to us as if it were our own. What an inconceivable gift. I never tire of contemplating on the glory of this gift. But you must understand, Peter here speaks of those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when he says this, he is summarizing the essence of the true gospel proclaimed by Jesus and the apostles. You see, salvation is made available only through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only His righteousness will save us. And our salvation ultimately depends upon God, not ourselves, though we are responsible to believe. And what's fascinating is because of our depravity, we are unable to even believe and exercise faith and exercise our will apart from a work of God. Therefore, it is always God that initiates salvation, not man. And yet, all men are commanded to believe. And therein is the divine paradox of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty and salvation. An inscrutable mystery. A paradox that is as humbling as it is inscrutable. You see, both the faith to believe as well as the righteousness of Christ necessary to reconcile us to a holy God, both of them are from God. Salvation is ultimately, therefore, a manifestation of the sovereignty of God, whereby He orchestrates all things to bring glory unto Himself. And I must hasten to add that no one is ever saved until they are first crushed by the weight of the law, until they first see 
how they have violated God's holiness. And only then will saving grace be divinely dispensed and humanly cherished. This is why whenever you read of Jesus evangelizing sinners, he always begins with the law, not with grace. Then when a sinner feels the full weight of their sin and the utter helplessness of their condition, God miraculously forgives them and imputes the righteousness of Christ unto them. And then the true gospel will transform men and women to reflect the divine nature of Christ, as we will see. And you must also understand that no one is truly saved who does not, first of all, confess their sin, but also submit to the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, sadly, most of these amazing realities of the true gospel are so distorted today. They are so denied and maligned in most ostensibly evangelical churches that what I have just said would not even be, not even be allowed to be spoken in most pulpits. So Peter begins here in these first four, four verses and even in the, the first chapter by reminding us of the very heart of the gospel that we must have a righteousness that is not our own, the righteousness of Christ. And secondly, we see not only does Christ's righteousness save us, but his resources empower us. Notice in verses 2 and 3, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, what is grace? Grace is that transforming reality whereby God lavishes his affection upon a sinner by stooping down and pardoning that sinner who has no hope of saving himself and then frees that sinner from the dominion of sin and ultimately from its penalty. Most all of us in this room and within the sound of my voice have been recipients of this grace of that saving grace, that transforming grace, but we are also spectators of that grace, aren't we not? As we continue to watch the Lord manifest Himself to us in His faithfulness and in His love over and over again, day by day. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. What is peace? Well, friends, this is peace with God. It's an objective peace. Don't get confused here. This is not some subjective peace. It is not peace, the peace of God. Certainly we can have the peace of God. And that comes through faithful obedience and through humble trust. But here he's speaking about an objective peace. You see, before we are born again, before our sins are forgiven, we are at enmity with God. There is a war that is going on. But when we are saved, the war is over. And the fountain of divine blessing is opened. That's why he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what we must understand is that we have nothing that God needs. We have nothing in ourselves that impresses Him. There is nothing in us that God desires. There's no righteousness of our own. But all that we need to be pleasing to Him, He provides for us. What an amazing resource, therefore, we have in Christ. Friends, what astounding provisions he has given us to cope with life and to live for his glory. And notice we can have both grace and peace. And he says it can be multiplied to us. Now, how, how, how can it be multiplied? How, how can we have more and more of this grace and peace? Well, it says through the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Knowledge, by the way, is referred to in verses two, three five, six, and eight. It is a very important concept as we study this first chapter of Peter, of Second Peter. And I would first want to 
cause you to understand that Christianity, my friends, is not some feel good religion based upon emotion where you just go to worship with people and you get all excited and you get all the warm fuzzies and and you get all the goosebumpy stuff and you just kind of keep searching for more and more of that. But rather, Christianity is something that engages the mind. It engages the intellect and the will. It requires knowledge. We are transformed, Paul said in Romans 12 too, by what? By the renewing of our emotions? No, by the renewing of our mind. You see, knowledge here, epignosis in the original language, is a very strong term in the original language. And it refers to a comprehensive, intimate, objective understanding of a subject. And here the subject is of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying here, if you want to experience more of my grace and more of my peace, not only the peace that I have given you with respect to the war now being over, but all of the peace and the joy and all of the things that I can give to you, you need to have an intimate, detailed, comprehensive, in-depth knowledge of who I am. Not some shallow understanding based upon emotional intuition or personal experience. You know, I tire of people giving me their personal experiences about some spiritual matter. Those things, my friends, are a dime a dozen. Experience doesn't validate anything. We have to have the facts of Scripture. In fact, we're going to see later on in verse 19 that Scripture is more reliable than an eyewitness account, Peter tells us. We have to have the facts of Scripture. And having a deep grasp of Bible knowledge is sadly something that most Christians really don't care much about. We'll leave that to the pastor and the Sunday school teachers and to the theologians and the Bible teachers in the seminaries. You know, I just want to kind of come in and get my brownie points in the sky for the week. I want to hear the pastor say some things, but I'm not going to take time to discipline myself To immerse myself in the Word of God so that I can have an intimate, detailed knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ so I can experience more of His grace, more of His peace, more of His joy. This is far more than the average Christian is willing to pursue, especially in these days of anti-intellectualism and emotional frenzy that has become the hallmark of neo-evangelicalism. Beloved, this is far more than merely knowing some facts about God. But you must understand that this involves knowing Him so well through the revelation of Himself in Scripture that you actually know Him intimately. And you love Him intimately. And you enjoy a dynamic and personal relationship with the living God that dwells within you. This is what I would refer to often as a secret devotion to God. Something that you cannot live without. This is the joy of personal fellowship. And you must understand that this is not something that just kind of comes by osmosis, by just hanging around a church or other Christians. This is something that comes only through a disciplined study of the Word of God and a decisive commitment to live consistently with what it says. It comes about through being not just a hearer of the Word, but a doer of the Word. This is what Peter had in mind later on in chapter 3, verse 18, when he said that I want you to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This idea of grace and peace being multiplied to us is a marvelous concept. We find it in other passages. Let me give you but a, but a couple. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 9.8. He says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance of every good deed. My friends, isn't that what you want in your life? And in Philippians 4.19 Paul says, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. 
Beloved, God has made available to us inconceivable spiritual resources. And sometimes we fail to consider the reality of that. But we will never experience the power of those resources and enjoy all of the blessings that could be ours unless we commit ourselves to the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. You see, then and only then will you have grace and peace multiplied to you. It's so sad. Over the years in counseling, I deal with Christians whose lives are an absolute disaster. I call it scrambled eggs. And the only way they can possibly put Humpty Dumpty back together again is for the Spirit of God to do a marvelous work of grace. And one of the things that I find inevitably in lives like that is simply this. They are ignorant of God. They're ignorant of the Word. Oh, they know some basic facts about the Gospel, and they may even indeed be born again. But beyond that, it's just kind of, you know, Jonah and the whale, Noah and the ark, and maybe a little on the second coming of Christ or whatever. My friends, you show me a Christian whose life is a wreck, whose life could be characterized by life-dominating sins, by confusion, by bad choices, and I'll show you a Christian who is not only ignorant of Bible doctrine, but who refuses to live consistently with the truths of Scripture. And sadly, it's now considered a virtue in many circles of evangelicalism to do away with doctrine because it is just too divisive. And certainly it is divisive. It divides between truth and error. You look on many churches' websites today and you'll not find a doctrinal statement. And when you ask them why, they will answer, well, it's because it's too divisive. Little wonder why Christians today cannot be distinguished from the world. And I would ask you, are you growing in the knowledge of Christ? Just take an inventory of yourself for a moment. Can you see a measurable change in your Christian maturity? Better yet, if you were to ask those that know you best, would they be able to say, yes, absolutely. I see my husband or my wife or my child, whatever. I, I, I see them becoming more and more like Christ. Ask yourself, do, do I know the Lord more intimately than I did a year ago? Does my life manifest more of the virtues of Christ than it did six months ago? And friends, if the answer is no, then you are spiritually malnourished and you're not feeding upon the word. You're not exercising your faith in humble obedience. What happens to us physically if we don't eat and we don't exercise? <laughs> we'll die. And the same thing is true spiritually. You will gradually wither away into carnality and your life will be nothing more than a long series of wasted opportunities. And everyone around you who knows you best will also suffer because of your sinfulness. Peter was very concerned about this issue of doctrinal knowledge and living consistently with it, knowing that the false teachers were coming up within the church and they were being given ingenious deceptions that people would fall for. Jesus warned of this in Matthew 7.15 when He said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. By the way, what sheep's clothing refers to is people who appear to be legitimate shepherds because shepherds wore sheep's clothing that really identified them as a shepherd. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now notice more concerning his resources that empower us in verse 3. He says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. This is a powerful statement. And whenever I read this, as well as some others that I'm going to share with you, I remember a time in my life I was, I was very close to having a Ph.D. in counseling psychology. I lacked my dissertation and I abandoned the whole thing as God brought conviction to my heart. And he used this passage as well as others to help me see this. 
Notice what he says. His divine power. By the way, this is the same power that caused Jesus to be raised from the dead. His divine power has granted to us. In the original language, the grammar is important here. It's a perfect passive participle. And it simply means this, that something that occurred in the past has continuing results in the present. What has occurred in the past that has continuing results in the present? Well, his divine power has granted to us, as we are going to see, these marvelous blessings, everything pertaining to life and godliness. You see, when we were transformed, when we, when we were born again, He supplied us with all of the supernatural resources, all of the supernatural power that we will ever need in this glorious process of sanctification to become more conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we have everything, not most things, but we have everything to for life and godliness. We have everything we need to cope with whatever comes our way in life. We have all we need to know and love and serve and worship God. Everything we need can be found in His Word. Everything we need can be brought to our mind by the illuminating, indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And it's sad. Some people will say, well... You know, I agree that God has, you know, He's given me enough grace to be justified, but I need something more to be sanctified, to grow. I'm going to need more here. I'm going to need to follow these rules or these regulations or whatever. Or others might say, I I know that He's given me enough to be saved, but but I, I need to search out other spiritual resources, other resources outside of the Bible where I can really become spiritual, where I can really be happy, uh, where I can really be successful, where I can really learn to cope with life. Or others might say, well, he's given me enough to be reconciled to him in saving faith, but he hasn't given me enough to help me stay that way. After all, I might do something to lose my salvation. In fact, when I look at my life, I see that I really need the theories and the therapies of psychology to help me get through this thing called life. I need seminars to help me learn how to bind Satan. Uh, I need more. I need to learn how to cast demons out of my life. I need some second blessing. I didn't get all I needed when I got saved. I need something more. I need more revelation. The Bible is not enough. I need some spirit baptism. I need some prayer language. I need to learn how to somehow manipulate God to get Him to give me what I think I really deserve. Oh, child of God, God, please hear this. You have all you need for life and for godliness. You just got to learn to tap into it through the true knowledge. Beloved, without a settled assurance of the sufficiency of Christ and all of the resources that He has supplied to you in your salvation, you will always, catch this now, you will always be chasing after some phantom cure, some phantom resource. You'll be going to this seminar, to the next seminar. And Satan has provided a vast smorgasbord of counterfeit resources. God used another verse in that season of my life as I jettisoned the man-centered theories of psychology and continued my studies in theology. Second Corinthians 10.5, I realized that much of what I was studying was what Paul called the lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God. And in Colossians 2, beginning in verse 8, Another powerful passage that had enormous impact on my life. The Apostle speaks to us saying, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. 
according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. You see, again, we were given in the past with continuing results everything pertaining to life and godliness. And as I think about those of you that I love, I know that some of you, some of you even in this room, certainly others within the sound of my voice are living a life of hypocrisy. Those closest to you know it. Through the true knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, as you immerse yourself in the word, guess what? The Holy Spirit will expose that and give you grace and multiply peace to you as he brings conviction to your heart. Some of you are dominated by sins. Some of you are habitual liars. Some of you may be control freaks in your workplace or in your marriage. Some of you have tempers that you seem to cannot be unable to control. Some of you maybe have no self-discipline. You're just downright lazy, especially with the spiritual disciplines. Some have no self-control. Some of you are hopelessly in debt because you have not been a good steward of the finances that God has given you. You've wasted your money on frivolous expenditures. You've accumulated credit card debt to the point where it is an absolute abomination before the Lord. Some of you have wasted your money on gambling, on the lottery, which is nothing more than a tax on the poor and the ignorant. Some of you are selfish and self-centered. Some of you, no doubt, are terrible husbands that don't lead your wife and your family spiritually. Some of you are wives that are equally as ungodly. Some of you are terrible mothers, terrible fathers. And I say this with all love, my friends, because you are placing yourself in the pathway of divine chastening. And unless you deal with your life, you are going to destroy your life. And your life will be nothing more than a wasted opportunity. And you will even forfeit eternal blessing because of it. But here's my point with all of this. It doesn't have to be that way. You have all you need. In Christ, He's granted to you all of these things. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. What will it take to get your attention? Do you have to finally get to the very bottom like the prodigal son? Oh, I hope not. His divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. This calling is the irresistible, the efficacious call to salvation. And I ask you, do you have a true knowledge of Christ? Or is yours just merely some superficial, churchianity, Sunday morning only type of knowledge? Do you really see His glory? Are you struck with the majesty of His holiness and His sovereignty? Are you overwhelmed By his character, do you marvel at all that he has done for you? Or has it become passe? You're really more concerned about your career or the pleasures of this world or entertainment than the things of God. Friends, let me put it another way. Does your heart race with the wonder and the joy of the excellency of Christ whenever you think about it? Do you feel yourself getting excited when you contemplate His moral purity and His infinite power and His eternal love and all that He has given you for life and for godliness, preparing you for eternal worship in His presence? If not, you need to examine yourself. And if you say, well, Pastor, not near enough, then I would encourage you to immerse yourself in the Word. Gain the true knowledge, this intimate knowledge. And not just to have the knowledge, but for it to transform you so that, as I say, you will live consistently with the truth. 
get serious about your walk with Christ, then and only then will you truly experience the power and the resources that God has given you. It's like walking around as a beggar wishing you had money and all you need to do is go to the bank and your bank account is full and you need to write a check. So Peter reminds us of Christ's righteousness that saves us and His resources that empower us. And finally, that His promises transform us. Verse 4, For by these, he says, in other words, the attributes of Christ's glory and excellence, which are the summation, frankly, of of His character and, and His redeeming work that purchased our salvation. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, friends, obviously Peter was thrilled with the prospect of all the promises inherent in his salvation. All of those promises that were currently sustaining him as he experienced his imprisonment and faced his imminent death. But also, these prospects thrilled him because he knew that eventually and very soon he would experience the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate fruition of his salvation in heaven. Think about this. God the Father is the one that has called us and adopted us. He is the one that protects and provides for his own through his omnipotent might. He is the one that has promised never to leave us nor to forsake us. And God the Son now sits at the right hand of the Father and mediates as our advocate, as our high priest. And He's gone away to prepare a place for us. And He's promised that He's going to come back again and take us unto Himself. And God the Holy Spirit indwells and and sanctifies and instructs and empowers us for service. And He has even sealed us into the day of redemption. So here, Peter declares a marvelous truth. All of these marvelous promises here. He's saying that not only as believers have you been called effectually by God through the true knowledge of the glory and excellency of Christ, not only are, are we recipients of everything that we need related to life and godliness, but if that isn't enough, he's saying we are also the undeserved recipients of all of His precious and magnificent promises for this life as well as the next. And why is that? So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. In other words, because of this, you are going to be able to share in the very life of God. You're going to be able to have eternal life with all of its infinite glory. Oh, child of God, please hear this. This is the power that transforms us into His glorious image. All of the precious and magnificent promises that God has given to us. And by His power, He enacts them. He energizes them in us so that we actually become partakers of the divine nature. And because of this, at the middle of verse 4 there, he says, we have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. We have escaped all of the corruption, my friends, all of the rotting decay of wickedness that is in the world. All of the the putrid, foul, smelling decomposition of moral impurity and idolatry that we see all around us. It's to the point where I can't hardly turn on the news anymore. We have escaped all of this. Yes, we're going to experience some of it as we journey through this life that is filled with, with sin's corruption. All of those things that have been brought on by lust, as he says. In other words, by the desires of sinful man. But ultimately, we have escaped its corruption because sin no longer has dominion over us, right? Romans 6, Paul tells us that we have died to sin. Sin no longer reigns. It remains, but it no longer rules us. And someday we will experience the fullness of our salvation when we are ultimately delivered eternally and completely from sin's metastasizing corruption, when we enter into glory and there's not even a hint of sin, these are the glorious promises that have transformed us. And friends, 
Notice I said, have transformed us. Today, now, it says He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might someday become partakers. No, that you might become partakers of the divine nature. The grammar here helps us see that this is a present reality for every believer. What a staggering truth. My friends, what, what amazing blessings we have in Christ. And again, this is the very essence of the gospel. His righteousness saves us. His resources empower us. His promises transform us. And how radically different these truths are from the deceptions of false teachers. And I close with this thought. Think how different this is from the message of the seeker-sensitive, easy-believism system that is so popular today where virtually all of the essential truths of the Gospel, all of the great elements of the character of God have been eviscerated so that somehow people will feel more happy rather than holy, feel more comfortable rather than convicted. False teachers now dominate the Christian landscape. Apostasy has swept through evangelicalism like a wildfire. All you have to do is turn on the television and you will hear it and see it. And our sovereign and omniscient God saw it all coming. My friends, He loved us enough to remind us of the truth concerning the essence of the gospel of Christ and warn us of the false teachers that would infiltrate the flock. I want you to know the truth so that when you see the deception, you will not be deceived. So I challenge you to pensively reflect upon the righteousness of Christ that has saved all of us who have placed our faith in Him. I challenge you to get lost in the wonder of all of that. And because of that, you will be motivated to love Him and to serve Him and to worship Him. And I would challenge you also to meditate upon the resources that He has given us and the empowerment that He has given to all, especially when we have a true knowledge of Him. Is this your testimony or is your life a disaster? And then finally, will you take time to marvel at all of the promises that God has given you so that you might enjoy more fully what it means to be a partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust? May God grant to us, to us all a passion to be obedient to these challenges. Let's pray together. Father, our hearts are filled with joy as we reflect upon the glorious truths of the gospel. Lord, may we indeed get lost in the wonder of it all. And because of that, may our devotion to you be strengthened. And I pray especially for those within the sound of your servant's voice who know that their life is not right. Oh God, how I pray once again, as I have prayed and many have prayed so many thousands of times before. Oh God, be merciful to them. Bring conviction to their heart and summon them back into your presence that they might enjoy all that you have given them in Christ. And Lord, if they do not know you, how I plead with you that you will overwhelm them with such conviction that they will confess their sin this day and repent and be saved. Have mercy on us, O Lord, I pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.